thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. In North Vietnam, we were required to take a fighter escort with us. Back in those days, the F-4 engines smoked big time. You could see them coming for miles, but if you went into afterburner, they quit smoking. We had a procedure that once we went feet dry, we went into men burner. Well, the fighter guys couldn't hang with us, and they would ask us, you know, can you pull it back a little bit? Nope, we're going. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 176. We'll be talking about RF4 Photo Phantoms, and it's a repurposed happy hour that we'll get to in just a little bit. But before we do, I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and I just have a couple quick announcements and some listener questions to cover because, well, it's been a little while. So just want to check in, make sure everybody's doing well. It's getting towards the end of September here, and man, I have had a pretty fun month frankly. I attended Tailhook at the end of August. Usually it's in September, but this year they moved it to the end of August. And then a couple weeks after that, I went to the Reno Air Races. And at both, I met many enthusiastic listeners of the show. So to all of you who stopped me at either Hook or the Reno Air Races, thank you so much. I always enjoy hearing from you. And I tell you to everybody else, I'm just blown away at the reach of this show. I had admirals telling me they listened. Uh, One, a three-star who listens on his commute, evidently. So, Bullet, thank you very much for mentioning that. I am honored. But, yeah, just to everybody else who stopped me and appreciate the show, thank you. It is a hard labor of love, but just knowing that it brings value to people is definitely worth it. Now, a couple other announcements. Let's see. This one's a little bit older, but I don't think I mentioned it last time. Uh, For those of you who have been on some of our Facebook groups, you know that we already retired the one for models, like plastic models. And uh, we decided to go ahead and also retire the pit, as it's called. That was the group for uh, enthusiasts who hope to someday become military aviators. We just weren't seeing a lot of traction on that. And in the spirit of spring cleaning, we uh, downsized and decided to delete that. On that note, I've also kind of put Twitter slash X on hibernation. So if you're looking for us there, uh, really your best bet is to find us instead on Facebook or Instagram as well as, of course, Patreon and YouTube. Yeah, we're just trying to keep things simple and sustainable. As great as it is to hear from everybody that uh, you appreciate the show, it is still a lot of work, and so I'm trying to manage that the best I can. Now, the other thing is, at the end of August, or whenever it was I spoke with you last, I told you I was going to be entering into a bit of a food fight with the FAA over some VA disability. Well, if my uh, beard is a wear indicator, if you will, it's going pretty well as far as the beard is, because uh, I'm not flying. And of all the things I thought the FAA would care about, there's just one that I've got to work through. And now that I'm back from a couple-week trip that I took, got to get into that. But yeah, once I knew I was going to be grounded, I told my wife, I said, hey, I'm loading up the truck with some fishing poles and guns and a sleeping bag and 
I'm going to go up and hunt some dove with some friends and then make my way up to the mountains and end up at the Reno Air Races. And that was a great time. I spent like five days in the mountains. And get this, I mean, for a podcast host especially, this is pretty amazing. I went one whole day without speaking a word to anyone. It was great. I was just out in the mountains. I was fishing. I was camping. And nobody was around. So I think I might have yelled an expletive to myself at one point. But that doesn't count. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, I had a good time. And I'm just waiting to see now what the FAA is going to do with me. And I got to, like I said, work through all that. So in the meantime, I'll be ready for Christmas, I guess, as much white is in, in my beard. But at any rate, it's fun. Uh, let's see what else. You may remember back on the Guido episode. I think it was Fighter Pilot Legacy or something like that with Guido. Well, I was asking him about the gun sight in the T2 because I was writing my memoirs and I couldn't remember. And again, that's what's great about having a podcast is invariably whenever I put something out there I'm not sure about, someone like Bill Young comes along and emails me and you, you got to hear this one. I'll just read some of these excerpts. Uh, Jello, loved the episode with Guido. He's a fine American. During the episode, y'all were talking about the mighty T2C Buckeye and you were asking if there was a gun sight or something for use in the gun pattern. And that's correct, Bill. That's exactly what I was asking. So anyway, Bill sent me pictures and a little right up here. He says, I was an instructor at VT9 slash 19 because I think they changed over in Meridian. And the answer to your question is yes, sort of. Some of the jets had a gun sight installed and most students were bummed if the jet they were assigned, especially in FAMS, had a gun sight because it blocked visibility out the front. I think originally it was designed to have some sort of laser scoring system. But when I was there in 97 and 2000, none of that stuff worked. If they were on a gun hop and their jet had a gun sight, they could turn it on to see the reticle. And then he sent me a picture from the T2 Natop. So hope this helps with your memoirs. Keep up the good work. Love the podcast. Well, thanks, Bill. Hope you don't mind me sharing all that. But I get so many emails and social media comments like yours. I just feel like I got to share them once in a while because it's good stuff. So the T2 had a gun sight, sort of. (laughs) All right, moving on to a couple of listener questions. First is from Anders Howard from Dallas, who says, on the carrier, do y'all eat MREs or is there a kitchen and a chef? If food is made on board, then is there ever a circumstance when you would need to eat an MRE? Well, Anders, if you ever get the chance to do like a friends and family day cruise, or if you're still young enough and join the Navy, well, then you will find out that not only are there galleys, as we call kitchens on ships, but there are fantastic. They used to be called mess cranks. Now they're, I think, culinary specialists, CSs. And so these are sailors whose specialty rate is to prepare the food for the sailors, other sailors, that is, and for the officers. And I mean, yeah, the food more or less is very good. I would say the one issue generally is if you haven't had a resupply in a while, then, you know, things start getting a little boring and you start losing the fresh fruit and vegetables. But I would say the biggest issue with the food that we're served on ship is just if you have a craving for something, well, you get what you get. So if you had a hankering for tacos or Mexican and you go down and it's uh, pork adobo, well, then I guess arguably that could be somewhat Mexican. But at any rate, point being, or chicken adobo or spaghetti, then you eat what's served. Otherwise, you can have the salad bar or a few snacks that are put out. I don't ever remember eating MREs on the ship. To be fair, there were a couple meals that I thought maybe an MRE would have been preferable. But for the most part, the meals were very good. They'd even spoil us with steak and lobster sometimes, especially if uh, we'd been out for a long time or something like that. And on one cruise, I think it was 2003, a bunch of high-ranking executives and chefs from Outback, that chain of restaurants, came out. And they brought, I don't know if they brought just the ingredients or they had it pre-positioned or what, but we had blooming onions and some of their steaks and big chocolate cakes. And we just 
gorged ourselves because when you're out there, there's not much else to do but eat and fly and sleep and work out. So you didn't have to worry about the weight, most of us. Of course, then you also have the feats of strength. You know, somebody see if they could eat a whole blooming onion or an entire chocolate cake, and that usually didn't go well. But yeah, that was pretty fun. Now, when I went in to like Aludeed and a few other places off the ship for a couple weeks at a time, then yeah, we might eat MREs there. But no, we did not eat MREs. And at least on the carrier, the food was, I thought, quite good. All right, next question is from Jeremy Walker. In reference to the simulators, you've mentioned more than once that y'all, everybody's saying y'all today, I don't know why, that y'all would use them to practice a mission before performing that mission. Does that mean there are simulators installed on the carrier or on a ship within the strike group? Well, first off, Jeremy, there would be no reason to put a simulator on any other ship because the logistics of that would just be improbable and impractical. But my last deployment was in 2009, and so my data is a little bit dated, but I doubt that it's changed, and the short answer is no. We did not have simulators. For certain checks that you needed a simulator, like NATOPS or instruments, you tried to do all those before you deployed, and if you needed it on deployment, you could just do it in flight the best you could. But you fly so much, you stay pretty proficient. Now, the one thing we had way back when was a, a software, I think it was called Topscene, and I hope I'm not giving anything away here, but it had like data that it gleaned from, I don't know where, but it would allow you to kind of get an idea of what it might look like if you were doing a low level or when you rolled in on a target, just based on the data it had of the surrounding lakes and rivers and desert or whatever it could, other geographic points or other physical structures and things. And so the idea was it would help your target acquisition. But no, we didn't necessarily go out and practice like 2v2 air intercepts with all four simulators or something like that, like you can do back in Lemoore or Oceana. I just didn't have those. So no simulators, but we did have, for example, back then as well, like a little harm laptop where you could practice some of the switchology just by clicking the buttons of what the cockpit might look like when you load a certain thing on the AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile, just because that one was so intensive with the button pushing. There was little things like that, but no simulators. That's a good question. All right, and then finally, Aaron, do you use different frequencies for tower approach in the landing signal officers, or are they both on the same frequency? I understand that Marshall control is on a separate frequency from tower. All right, so for everyone else, what Aaron's asking about here are carrier landing frequencies here. And yeah, we can do these ZIP-LIP or COM-OUT or MCON. But for the most part, we do use regular good old verbal communications on UHF frequencies. And Aaron, the answer to your question is, hey, I got through three without saying this, but it depends. So we have what are called case one, two, and three procedures. You might be familiar with these. Perfect weather, daytime is case one. Nighttime or crap weather is case three. And then a mix of the two in the daytime could be case two, where you marshal like you do in case three, but you come down and then you go into the visual pattern like case one. So yes, you're correct. First people you talk to are marshal and they have their own frequency. For case one, marshal will hand you off to tower and tower and paddles, the LSOs are on the same frequency. And except for CQ in a perfect world, you never hear anything. I guess now with magic carpet, you might hear the speed of the ship. In the old days, you might hear the tower paddles radio check and 99 working Movelis or, you know, working winds. And, um, but yeah, you could theoretically and should try to do it zip lip, meaning you don't really talk too much. Now in case three, you'll stay with Marshall till you push down and then you go up approach and there's two different approach frequencies because of the separation between aircraft. They don't want to clobber it. Whereas you can get away with just one in case one patterns because there's not as much talking. 
but case three is a little bit busier. And so paddles will just switch back and forth depending on the next guy down the chute and he'll be up that. And yeah, you make a ball call, they respond. And then they're there, of course, to give you any, what is it? Advisory or imperative calls. So, Hey, you're lined up left. Oh, okay, dude, you're lined up left, fix it. But it's not an imperative of, you know, right for lineup, meaning, Hey, go to the right because your lineup sucks. I hope that helps. That's basically how the frequencies work. Case two, I guess I didn't mention that, is kind of a hybrid. You marshal, you push, and then you basically, once you see the ship, you go to tower, and then it's like case one from there. All right, always appreciate the questions. And yeah, we still, a lot of these get answered uh, on email or wherever they come in. We still have the uh, phone number that's sort of in hibernation right now, trying to figure out if we want to bring that back or just let it go completely. But it's always fun to get these questions, and I hope other people find value in me answering them as well. You can, of course, ask your questions to questions, plural, at fighterpilotpodcast.com or on social media. All right. Well, that will do it for this week as far as announcements and questions. And as we've kind of turned to in 2023, we're going to go to the interview next, but I won't be back at the end. So I guess I'll just say goodbye for now and let you know that the good news as far as my sitting on the bench with the airline thing goes is it's given me time to do other work here on the podcast and more interviews. So we're going to keep it going as long as we can. Still working on my memoirs. You heard me talking about that with uh, Ed as well as Guido. Trying to do a chapter a month, a lot harder than it sounds. And so uh, my respect to all the people like Kevin Miller, Hoser and and Ward Carroll, uh, Mooch, who uh, write and those who have sent me books to read. Thank you very much. I'll read those as soon as I can. And I'm trying to write my own and I'll let everybody know when that happens. But probably next spring or summer at this point, the rate I'm going. Anyway, I won't be back, but uh, we are going to now repurpose a 2021 happy hour with Racehorse, as I think I call him on the show. I never actually mentioned his full name, but he was a retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Larry Rannells. And uh, he sat in the back and then went in the front and was an Air Force pilot and a Navy pilot and a Navy NFO and a whole bunch of other things you'll be amazed by here in a little bit. So with that, let's talk RF4 photo phantoms with Racehorse, and we'll see you all next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Here we go. Thanks for joining us on this happy hour. How are you today? I'm good. I'm sorry I had to come in a little late. I just came from a Chamber of Commerce board meeting where we had some negotiations going with the staff. So it took a little longer than I expected. Well, it's a Chamber of Commerce type of day here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was in the low 70s. I took a nice walk by the river on my layover. But where are you? Are you up near Santa Barbara? Is that right? No, I'm in San Clemente. San Clemente, that's right. Halfway between LA and San Diego. I drive right by you all the time. So are you based out of LA? I am, yes. How long have you been with Delta? Coming up on five years next spring. Okay, outstanding. Yeah, it's been pretty good. But, you know, you run around a lot. You're not home. I don't know. I've got teenage sons, and I I get the feeling they think, oh, I don't have to listen to dad. He'll be gone in a day or two for a few days. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, what do you got in your background there? Well, uh, I came in the Marine Corps in 1966, and uh, I actually tried to join the Air Force first. And that's a separate story, but uh, I ended up coming into the Marine Corps, went to OCS, got selected for the aviation program, went down to Pensacola. And while I was in OCS, I was so stupid back in those days, I didn't even know the Marine Corps had airplanes. 
But they took our whole class one day over to Cherry Point and gave us a whole day's brief on what the air wing is all about. Had a bunch of static display aircraft to look at and so forth. And when we came back from that trip, our platoon sergeant said, anybody interested in getting into the air wing, come see me. Well, I, I went to see him. He said, well, you're going to have to take a written test. If you pass that, you're going to have to take a physical. If you pass that, then when you get out of here, you're going to go to flight school down at Pensacola. So that sounded pretty good. And I took all the tests, passed everything, but they told me on the written test, I didn't score good enough to be a pilot. I only scored good enough to be an NFO. So I was just so happy to get into the air wing. That sounded pretty good. So I went to Pensacola and I went through the NFO syllabus, got my first set of orders to El Toro. I think you know where that is, even though it's now closed. And uh, I got assigned to the RF-4 squadron there, did a tour in the backseat. I mean, got my MOS as an NFO, went and did a tour in Vietnam as a backseater. But before I went to Vietnam, a good friend of mine and myself, we decided, let's go retake the test. So we retook the test again, and they said, well, you passed this time. You qualified to go to flight school. But they said, however, we spent all this time training as an NFO. You're going to have to go do a tour in Vietnam before we even consider going back to flight school. So that's what happened. We did that. When my tour was up, I got orders to go back to the Air Force to go through the Air Force flight training program. My friend got orders back to Pensacola and went through the Navy program. So I, I got trained to fly by the Air Force at Webb Air Force Base, which was in Big Spring, Texas. That was in 1969. At the time, that was one of 10 bases that the Air Force had that they were doing pilot training at. A bunch of them have closed since then. And I didn't know it till years later, but there was a period of time in the late 60s, early 70s that the Marines had a lot of students going through Air Force flight training because they could not get enough seats down at Pensacola. You know, Vietnam was going, and I think the Navy was probably taking most of the seats. And the Marine Corps also had a lot of student pilots going through the Army's helicopter training program at Fort Rucker. I think that was in Alabama. Now, Larry, you're going to get to this, but you're going to pin on Navy Wings of Gold, and part of that is to land on a carrier. So are, are we going to get to that? or? Yeah, here's, here's what's interesting is, in the Air Force flight training program, unlike I know the Navy runs it, the day you checked in and started your class, they told you what day you were going to graduate. And it was like one year later. I mean, they had their syllabus down. I never lost a hop because they didn't have an aircraft. If the aircraft you got assigned went down, they had a backup. If the backup went down, they had another backup. But it took one year to get through the Air Force program, and you got Air Force wings. Oh, wow. So what the Marine Corps did is anybody that went through the Air Force flight program, if you were going to the West Coast, you went to Yuma to begin with, Marine Corps Air Station Yuma. You went into a TA-4 squadron, and you got all of the things that the Navy would have taught you in their flight training that the Air Force didn't. Things like, first of all, how to land the aircraft. The Air Force, as you know, they have a completely different landing technique. 
they can afford to. They like to call greasing it on where they come down final and on short final, they're pulling the power back to idle and just flaring it on and a nice smooth landing. But if you want to do a touch and go, you got to come back on with the power and, you know, go four, two or 3,000 feet down the runway to get airborne again. That was a habit you learned going through Air Force flight training that the Navy and the Marine Corps had to fix. And so in this TA-4 squadron, they taught you, first of all, how to land Marine Corps style for carrier approaches and so forth. They gave us bombs and rockets, which we didn't get in the Air Force. They gave us a little ACM, you know, basic maneuvering training. The Air Force program did not give you that kind of stuff, but it did really had a heavy emphasis on formation flying and instrument flying. So anyway, you went to this TA-4 squadron, I think we got about 60 to 70 hours in the TA-4, and that included carrier quals. So here's how we did the carrier quals. I guess at the time, carrier decks were not available. So we went to El Centro, we did FCLPs and all the workup that you would do for a typical carrier qual. And instead of going to a carrier, they sent us to El Toro and El Toro had a, I don't know if you ever had the chance to fly into that base or not. It was probably closed before you got out to the West Coast. But El Toro had a SATS runway, and that was a little narrow, about maybe 75-foot wide runway out of Marston matting, and it had, I think it only had one cable across it for arrested landings, and it was probably, I can't remember the length of it, but it wasn't that long, and it was, it came off of the overrun of runway 3-4 left, which was a 10,000-foot runway. Well, as you were approaching 3-4 left on the uh, the beginning of that runway, that sat site ran back toward your approach. And so you would fly a normal carrier pattern, get your hook down, make your approach, land, snag the wire, and then you would taxi off to the side. And they had another little section where they would catapult you off. They actually had a catapult set up that was run by a couple of J-79 engines and you would extend your gear just like you would on the carrier, your nose gear. They'd hook you up and they would shoot you off. You just keep your gear down, fly your pattern around, make another approach and an arrested landing. So I think we did about six of those. And they said, OK, your carrier quals. That's how we got our carrier quals. That's crazy. So, by the way, I did go. I was in one of the last classes of VMF AT 101 in El Toro before it closed in the mid 90s. So, okay, I did spend almost a year there, and it was—I always say it was the best year of my life. Although my wife doesn't like to hear that because she was home getting her master's degree while I was in El Toro as a 25-year-old lieutenant with a big truck with the big wheels and having a lot of fun. But okay, well, then you probably did see the sat site because I probably saw it, but I don't remember you it. Probably never paid much attention no. to it. Because we actually had a boat. We went out to, I'd have to check my logbook, but did you guys not use San Clemente back then? Did you not have that available to you? Well, it probably was available at that time. And this was 1970. This was in 70 when I was doing these TA4 things over at El Toro. And I don't know, uh, I'm sure San Clemente was available. And the squadron I was in later, we went to San Clemente all the time for carrier calls when we were sending debts out to the Midway. 
but this was just to get your Navy wings a goal. And once you went through that TA-4 program, they gave you Navy wings, and then you got assigned to a real squadron. All right, Larry, did you ever wear a dress uniform where you wore all three pairs of your wings? <laughs> I didn't, although the flight equipment shop one time made me a name tag that had the NFO wings, Air Force wings, and Navy wings all on it. I never <laughs> wore them, but... Uh, well. I think you're probably the first person I've had on this show and has had all three of those. I've had a couple of people with that too. And even people have asked me, hey, what happens when we had a guest who was a Marine aviator who went to an Air National Guard F-15 unit? And he, what happens when he wears his dress uniform? He tells me he can wear both sets of wings. Yeah, I, I was entitled to wear them. But I, you know, once I got my Navy wings, that, that's all I cared to wear. So did you ever go to the actual carrier? Never did. Never did. Now, well, I'll tell you later about this, but I was in a squadron and I ended up commanding that squadron that we had nine straight years of providing four plane debts to the USS Midway. And I don't think there's a Navy squadron out there that can say that they were on one carrier for nine consecutive years. Especially these days. But anyway, we provided this four plane debt and every six months we would turn over the people. And then once a year we would trade out the airplanes. Is that because Midway was in Japan? Yeah, it was home based at Yokosuka at the time. And that was after the Marine Corps started out with uh, three RF-4 squadrons. Well, hold on, Larry, I gotta interrupt because, so I've been, I've been interrupting your story all along. Oh, sure, go ahead. You flew in the back of the F-4, was it an RF-4 when you were an NFO? Yeah, the RF-4. So then you went to training, and I don't know what you flew at the Air Force, but I guess it's not necessarily important. Then you went to the Yuma and did the ATA-4, which is the same thing I flew, by the way. And then what did you do after you finally got your Navy wings of gold? Did you get what airplane at that point? I got reassigned back into the RF-4. <laughs> so you just moved forward five feet. I moved forward five feet. And I can tell you, I would not, if I hadn't had the opportunity to do that, I wouldn't have stayed in. And to be honest, I'm really glad that I had that one tour in the back seat because I think it made me a better front seat guy. And I knew what the back seat guys were dealing with. When I came into the squadron as a NFO, my very first tour, the RF-4 was brand new. It had only been in that squadron for about a year. First of all, the Marine Corps only purchased 36 RF-4s to begin with. And they began to be delivered in about the 1966 time frame to three different squadrons that the Marine Corps had at that time called VMCJ. That was Marine Corps Composite Reconnaissance Squadron. They had VMCJ-1, VMCJ-2, and VMCJ-3. And each of those squadrons were assigned to one of the three Marine aircraft wings. VMCJ-2 was on the East Coast at Cherry Point. VMCJ-3 was on the West Coast at El Toro. VMCJ-1 was over in uh, Iwakuni, Japan at the time. That's where it was home-based. And those squadrons had previously had RF-8s as their photo reconnaissance capability. They also had a second aircraft called the EF-10, which... You probably won't remember this because you don't go back that far, but the EF-10 was formerly 
the F3D Sky Knight. It was a night fighter in Korea. It was built and had a mission of, of radar to do night intercepts in Korea. It was a straight wing jet. Two guys sat side by side. It wasn't front and back. It was side by side. They didn't even have ejection seats. They had a laundry chute between the two air crew that you had to slide down through and come out the bottom. But it was a pretty good jet back in its day in the Korean era. It ultimately got converted to an electronic countermeasures aircraft, and they renamed it the EF-10, which was an ECM mission-type aircraft. And those three VMCJ squadrons that I just mentioned, they were composed of two different aircrafts. It used to be the F-8s and the EF-10s, and then the F-8s got replaced with the RF-4. So when I got the VMCJ-3 as a backseater for my first tour, I got there in 1967. We had the RF-4, which is only about a year old at the time, and we had EF-10s. Did you fly both? I didn't. What they tried to do, you know, Vietnam was going pretty good then. They would take half the if you're a new pilot or a new NFO, they kind of split us in half and said, okay, you guys are going to train on the F-4. You guys are going to train on the F-10, EF-10. Once you got your MOSs, if we got time, we'll cross-train you. But very few guys got cross-trained because they were trying to get your MOS so you could go to Vietnam. And at that time, we didn't do squadron replacements. We did individual replacements. VMCJ-1, which had been previously at Iwakuni, it got rotated over to Da Nang in probably the 1966 timeframe, 66, maybe early 67. And the VMCJ-2 guys and VMCJ-3 guys on the east and west coast, we provided the manpower to replace. You went over for a 13-month tour. So as soon as you got your MOS, Typically, your number came up. It was time for you to go over and do your tour in Vietnam. We did have a few guys that got cross-trained, but not many. So, Larry, when I went to VMFAT-101, that was a fixed-wing Marine fighter attack training squadron. What is the C and the J for in VMCJ-1 or 2 or 3? Well, composite reconnaissance. I guess the C was composite and J was reconnaissance. And then who are you providing the services for, right? So the Marines play with the Navy a lot, but the Marines also like to support themselves. Were you giving stuff to the commanders on the ground or were you just part of the overall air wing picture for the Navy, for the Navy commanders? Well, it was mostly for the Marine Corps. In Vietnam, we actually were working more for the Air Force than anybody else. The Air Force kind of controlled all the aviation assets over there, as I remember. I mean, I, I went over there as a first lieutenant, so I didn't know squat. <laughs> but, you know, we got fragged and, and the missions we flew were primarily to support the ground Marines up in I-Corps, but all of our reconnaissance efforts, the photos and so forth, they were all sent down to Saigon as well. After the interpreters, photo interpreters would look at them, you know, first at the squadron and then at the wing level, then they'd be sent down to the Air Force in Saigon. You know, the mission of that aircraft was to provide photographic reconnaissance, and we had three different ways of doing it. We had optical cameras. We had three different stations in the aircraft where those optical cameras were housed. 
Then we had an infrared imaging system that was pretty damn good. It was a system where you could actually develop, you just flew over wherever you were flying, and it was a heat sensor type system where it would take the heat radiating up from the ground and it would form a pretty good piece of imagery. And I could show you some uh, optical photos and then I could show you, here's the same thing in a infrared image type photo. And you'd be surprised how well you could see the same. We also had a third system called side looking radar. And that was a system that actually used radar waves to take photographs. They were probably the least good quality type photos, but that was capable of making imagery. You could be 30,000 feet above a cloud deck that's 30,000 feet thick, and you can still get imagery from the sad looking radar. Especially for metallic objects that are going to reflect a lot better than the hillside and the rocks. and the That system was not as good and stayed up as well as the other two, but uh, it worked. We didn't use it a lot compared to the optical photos and the infrared imagery. I got a little model here. If you don't mind, I'll show it. Yeah, please do. Because then you got a picture behind you, too. And I see a, a square on the right side of that leading aircraft by the 34. So I'm curious what that is. All right. If you if you look at you're looking at the nose of the aircraft and you can see the RF4 has a really sleek nose. It's it's probably about three to four feet longer than the fighter version. OK, maybe five feet. And you're seeing a side window, that little dark spot in front of the 23. Yes, I see it. That's an optical window from station two, and that's on both sides of the aircraft. If I turn this upside down, you see under the bottom aircraft. I see about four of them. You can see four of them. The one at the very front, this one right here, that's actually a forward-looking station. Okay. This is station one. This is station two, and this back one is station three. Station one... If I turn this thing facing you, the pilot can rotate it to look forward at a 45 degree angle, or it can be rotated to look straight down 90 degrees. Station two that has those side windows, you can set your cameras up to rotate it to the left or the right at about a 45 degree angle, or you can have it looking straight down and the same with station three. So those are the three optical camera stations and there's all kinds of different configurations that you can put into the aircraft that have anywhere from a three inch to about an 18 inch focal length in these cameras. And these optical cameras are just like any camera you had back in those days, long before the uh, digital cameras came along, where it just ran with regular film. And the film was pretty good sight. The camera was big. The film was probably four to six inches wide, pretty good size film. And you got some really good photographs, particularly in the daytime, but you could also get good photographs at night. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. 
Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, AirCore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. So knowing the threat and what you wanted to photograph, did that become your mission planning is which camera and which angle and all that? Yeah. I mean... When you had a mission, whatever it may be, the first place you went was what we call planning and briefing, where they would give you what the target was, what altitude they would like to get it shot at, what imagery they would like to use, and so forth. And so once you had that, then the camera guys, we had a photographic section that actually loaded the cameras in the aircraft. They were aware of that as well, and they would make sure they had the proper camera configuration in for whatever your mission required. Sometimes it was all optical. Sometimes it was infrared. Sometimes, like I said, we could take night photography. And what I wanted to show you is on the back end, back here, just below the stabilator, a little forward of that, we had on both sides of the aircraft, we had a container inside the turtleneck that held what they call photo flash cartridges. And if you were going to do night optical photographs, those cartridges would be loaded and the camera system would be set up. Everything was worked by internal computer, depending on your altitude and your airspeed and which camera station you were using. And when you turned your cameras on as you approached the target area, these cartridges would come shoot out from both sides of the airplane, and it was like a gigantic flash cube. It would shoot out, I don't know how far, maybe 50 or 60 feet, and then a big flash of light, which would light up the ground below you, and it was sequenced so that that big flash of light would uh, happen at the same time the camera lens opened and took a picture. So you could make a running nighttime run over your target and get photographs of whatever your target area was. And they came out pretty good for night photography. Now, that wasn't used nearly as much as the daytime, but it was a capability in case you ever needed it. That's crazy. Hey, before you put that model away, was that special to the RF-4, the canopy, or am I maybe not seeing it right? That looks more like a bubble canopy, like on an F-14, than the one in your background image a little bit ago where it almost looked like you're in a sort of a coffin with windows. No, this, this is just a model that was made in Japan, and uh, it may not be 100% accurate as far as the canopy setup. Okay. What you saw in the background on the aircraft, that's, you know, that's real. Yeah, because I remember our F4 guest, when we had an episode, talked about he didn't have as much visibility, but also he had protection so that when the SAM went off over their heads... It spared him, but it killed the pilot. Well, that's true. And uh, that's exactly the back seat. You don't see nearly as well as you do in the front seat, both the F-4 and the RF-4. 
neither one of them, you know, can you see that well from the back seat? You can't see hardly anything forward. And looking out the sides, you, you actually, I think it's just the way the airplane's designed. You, you, you feel like you're sitting just a little bit lower in the seat than the front seater guy was. So did you have any instant feedback that you were getting what you wanted in the jet when you were flying the mission? Or did you just know, I've got to run down this valley at this altitude on this heading and it should be worked out? No, I mean, you, uh, you knew exactly what you could get. In the front seat, the pilot had a viewfinder. Instead of the radar scope that the regular F-4s had, we had a viewfinder that was about the same size. And you could rotate that viewfinder to look forward or you could rotate that viewfinder to look straight down. And so as you're approaching your target, once you get in the target area and you know what your target is, you typically, what I like to do is keep it forward to kind of get my line up. And once I know I'm on the right heading and got the right altitude and lined up, then you'll rotate it down as you're going over the target. And you know right away if you got it or you didn't, because you'll see it. Does that mean you didn't have a radar then? We had a radar, but we had a different kind of radar. Well, the sideways looking, the SLAR, but did you have anything? No, there's no, there's, uh, yeah, we had a radar in the nose and it was not an air intercept type radar. I don't remember the nomenclature, but it was a ground mapping and terrain avoidance radar. So we did a lot of training using that radar for ground mapping so that if in bad weather conditions, you could find your target or wherever you were trying to get to coming off the water across a coast going inland somewhere you had a lot of syllabus hops to learn how to navigate using just that radar and that was a backseater's job primarily but the pilot you know monitored it as well but then that radar had the capability to give you terrain avoidance at nighttime in particular and you could set it for 500 feet a thousand feet or two thousand feet and it was pretty good. If the radar was up, it was pretty accurate and really good. We had a radar altimeter in the aircraft as well. And that radar working in conjunction with the radar altimeter would give you terrain clearance based on however you set it. And it was really good for particularly night infrared missions. In Vietnam, we did a lot of night infrared type missions and we typically flew those at about 2,000 feet AGL. I mean, if you're over an area where you know there's not a lot of mountains, you can certainly lower your altitude down to 1,000 or even 500. And we would go out, you know, and back at El Toro and training and so forth, and you would practice flying at those different altitudes just to get a feel for how is the radar actually working in the daytime when you can look out and see what's ahead of you. And once you got comfortable and you knew, hey, this is pretty damn good, it's pretty accurate, then it made you feel pretty good flying it at night when you can't see real well. That's right. But that's the kind of radar we had. It was a forward-looking terrain avoidance and ground mapping radar. It had nothing to do with the side-looking radar, which was for imagery. Those, those were a couple of panels on the side of the aircraft. So as far as enemy goes, you're relying on speed and surprise and maybe escorts, right? So I'm guessing you, you couldn't look out and find other targets, which you, I'm guessing you couldn't do much about anyway, any weapons at all? Well, we had absolutely no weapons, no, no guns, no rockets, no bombs. Speed was actually, you know, our, our biggest thing. 
Would you go single ship or two ship or what would you Yeah, we were typically always single ship. I mean, the mission of that aircraft is pretty much for the most part single ship. In Vietnam, we had a squadron SOP 450 knots minimum in South Vietnam, 550 knots minimum in North Vietnam. <laughs> and if we got tasked with targets in North Vietnam, we were required to take a fighter escort with us. And that would usually be a flight of two. So we'd get together and brief with those guys before the hop. We'd tell them, okay, here's the target area. Here's the game plan. We'd typically launch out of the Nang, fly off the coast until we got up to where we needed to go feet dry. Then we'd start letting down to whatever our altitude was. And typically around 2,500 feet, if the weather was supportive of that, that was a good altitude to avoid the ground fire the small arm stuff, and you could be pretty good at any missiles at that altitude. Now, the whole time I was there, I never saw a SAM. I never saw one SAM fired. We got tracked a lot. You know, we were tracked many times, but I never did see a, a SAM launch. But we would start our letdown, and you may know this, back in those days, the F-4 engines smoked big time. You could see them coming for miles with the black smoke. <laughs> but if you went into afterburner, they quit smoking. So in North Vietnam, we pretty much had a procedure that once we went feet dry, we went into men burner. We started picking up the speed and that cut out the smoke. Well, the fighter guys, almost invariably, you could see them in the mirror. They start dropping back. They couldn't hang with us. And they would ask us, you know, can you pull it back a little bit? Nope, we're, we're still going. So we'd usually make one run across whatever the target was, have a turnaround point. Depending if we got it or not, we might make a second run coming back the other way, but most of the time you didn't. So you never saw any missiles. Now that might not be a big deal if you did one mission, of course, but how many missions did you end up doing, Larry? I did about 125. Wow. But it, well, here, and, and I should have got at least 200. Like I said earlier, I went over as a first lieutenant. I went over in August of 68. I think it was in October, I got promoted to captain. And in November, there was a tasking that came down to that squadron, VMCJ1, that they needed a captain to go to the wing S2 office to work in the S2 as a targets guy. Well, I was a junior captain. The CO of the squadron at the time had come out of J2. He didn't know me. The XO had come out of J2 and the OPSO had come out of J2. They didn't know who I was. So when that tasking came in, I was the guy that got selected to go do it. So I went to the wing headquarters, which was in Da Nang, and worked in the G2 section, which really cut down on my ability to fly. And when I could fly, it was mostly at nighttime, you know, at the end of the day. And, and so I got a lot of night IR missions, which I was happy about. I kind of enjoyed that as much as any of them. Because in the IR mission, the guy in the back seat actually kind of runs the flight once you get over the target area. And those IR missions, they would be area coverages where you'd make a run for you know, maybe five to 10 miles, the area you're looking to cover, they called it a plowshare process, where it's kind of like plowing a field. And you make a, you know, nice, easy turn and come back in the other direction. 
maybe five miles south of that. And then you'd make a run on the other end. And you just kept going in this circular motion till you had the, the area covered. And it's the guy in the back seat that's watching the inertial navigation system that's keeping you on the line. But you're supposed to be on tracking the right line for your coverage. The pilot's just flying the airplane, looking at the uh, radar terrain clearance and so forth, making sure you're clear of everything. So anyway, that's I, that cut down on my flight capability. I didn't get, I got a few day hops, but not many after that. I want to ask you about how do they decide which airplane gets tasked? Because at the time, as I understand, you had RF-4s, you had RF-8s, and you had RA-5s. So is it just whatever was available or was there a difference in the capabilities between them? Well, no, you know, the RA-5 was a Navy aircraft and they pretty much operated off of carriers. And I think the Navy pretty much took care of the northern part of North Vietnam, you know, I think it was Route Package 6 and 7, which were Haiphong and Hanoi were up in that area. And the Navy never came down. As far as I know, I don't think any RA-5s ever came down to uh, the south part of Vietnam for any taskings. The F-8, we didn't have F-8s by then. All the F-8s, by the time the F-4 got into the inventory, the RF-4, the F-8s were being phased out. Oh, okay. They had, they had been in Vietnam and actually... Uh, they had a uh, debt of RF-8s that flew off the boat off of a Yankee station before the RF-4s even got to the name. But once the RF-4s got over there, the F-8s were being withdrawn. So in the, I can only speak for the Marine Corps. I mean, the Air Force, they had gobs of RF-4s. They had them at two or three different bases over there. Was it the same aircraft that you flew or was it different? Like, did it have... The sturdy landing gear? And a, and a it was generally the same. I mean, the Marine Corps, our first set of RF-4s, like I said earlier, were 36, and they were the RF-4B. They all came out in the 66-67 time frame. They were delivered to those three VMCJ squadrons. Each squadron got 12 aircraft. Well, here's an interesting stat for you. We lost due to training accidents, and there were three combat losses in Vietnam because of the losses of aircraft, the Marine Corps decided to buy an additional 10 RF-4s that got delivered in the 1970 timeframe. And those 10 RF-4s, when they came off the line, McDonnell Douglas was building the J model at that time. The J model had fatter tires, it had wider main tires, which meant that had to have thicker wings when the gear came up. That was primarily the big difference was when the RF-4 10 aircraft came off the line in the 1970 timeframe, they were really J's. They were 157 block numbers. The original 36 we got were 151 and 153 bureau numbers. 151, 153 was the original 36. Then the additional 10 that came out a few years later were 157 bureau numbers. That made a total of 46 RF-4s that the Marine Corps purchased. Those 46 aircraft served the Marine Corps for 24 years between 1966 and 1990. In that 24 year period, we lost 20 of those aircraft. It actually should have been 21. I'll tell you that in a minute. We lost 20 aircraft. 
which when you calculate that, that's a 43% loss rate, which is pretty high. I mean, I don't know for any other aircraft, you know, how many regular fighter versions of the F-4 were produced and how many, what percentage of those were lost to either combat or accidents. I don't know, but we had a 43% loss rate of the RF-4 community during that period that it served the Marine Corps. My goodness. Now, the one that wasn't counted as a loss, but should have been, in 1983, on one of our Midway decks, we had an aircraft that was, uh, when the Midway goes into port, the aircraft fly off and they fly out of Iwakuni. And when the Midway wasn't at sea, the debt would come off and go to uh, Iwakuni and serve first mall with whatever their needs were, first marine aircraft wing. Our debt was in Iwakuni at the time. We had a crew that was doing uh, night touch and goes at Iwakuni, and they were coming in for their final full stop. And at about quarter of a mile off the end of the runway, and I'm guessing maybe 400 feet or so in the air, had a dual engine flame out. Both engines quit just like that. Where they were, based on the situation, they both ejected and they got out okay. They got picked up okay. But the aircraft was so perfectly set up that it continued forward. It landed in the overrun. It went down the runway about 1,500 feet, coasting with no power. It kind of eased to the left and went off into the grass and went about another 1,000 feet into the grass and just came to a stop. It turned out that aircraft was not a class A mishap. Really? It had to replace two ejection seats, two canopies, and a left wing drop tank that got dinged up when it went into the grass and the tank got bent or something. And it was amazing that aircraft was able to be recovered, revived, and flew again. Wait a minute, Larry, first off, Whatever happened to the saying that uh, the F-4 was proof that even a brick could fly with enough power. So it sounds like uh, that refutes that. But secondly, something must have caused the dual flame out. So what was up with that? Well, here's what ultimately happened. I don't know if you have any familiarity with the F-4 or ever flew it, but... No, I didn't ever fly it, but very little familiarity from doing the show. Well, in the turtleback, there are six different fuel tanks in the turtleback. And the number one fuel tank is the one right behind the cockpit, the closest one to the cockpit. That's the one that feeds the engines. The other tanks feed the number one fuel tank through a system of pumps. In that number one fuel tank, there's a probe that sticks up from the bottom and goes up to the top. And there's a sensor in that probe that if the fuel level drops below wherever that sensor is, that turns on the low fuel light in the cockpit. That says you're now down to 2,000 pounds or less of fuel. Well, they're doing touch and goes. They never got a low fuel alert. The fuel gauge looked like it still had good fuel. They got no alert that you're low fuel. It turned out in the investigation, something failed with that sensor. And what's supposed to happen is if the fuel drops below that sensor, besides turning on the fuel low light in the cockpit, it also turns on transfer pumps in fuel cell number four and fuel cell number six that takes any residual fuel that's left in those last five tanks and pumps everything to the front. Well, those pumps didn't come on because the sensor failed. 
And so they just had absolutely no idea that they were down to the fuel level they were. And it just so happened that when it came on, they were, I don't know, maybe the guy was a little fast or something in his <laughs> approach, but I have never heard of an airplane landing itself with nobody in it, and an F-4 in particular. I think there was an F-106 that did a spiral into a farmer's field, right? But uh, yeah, not an F-4, rather. That's funny. I wonder if that pilot ever flew that airplane again. So there was an Air Force RF-4 in the squadrons and Marine RF-4 in squadrons. Did the Navy fly RF-4s? Maybe I should know that. No, the Navy elected not to replace their RF-8s. The Navy had RF-8s at the same time the Marine Corps, but they elected not to replace theirs with the F-4. I, you know, I can't speak to that. And then didn't the RF-4 fly in Desert Storm in 91? I don't know. It must not have been Marine, no? Not the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps decided, well, those three VMCJ squadrons that I talked about, in 1975, the Marine Corps decided they wanted to consolidate all the RF-4s into one single squadron. So they made the decision that we're going to decommission those three squadrons and we're going to move all RF-4s to El Toro and we're going to stand up a new squadron called VMFP-3. And that was the name was changed to Marine Corps Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron 3 because it was part of the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. So in 1975, of July 1st, that became effective, and all the RF-4s got transferred to El Toro. And that new squadron stood up with a TO of 21 aircraft and a manpower TO of about 1,000 people altogether, which is a pretty big squadron. But they would send debts out then at that point? Yeah, it was from that squadron that we had to send out the four-plane debts. But at the same time that was happening, remember I mentioned the EF-10, the electronic countermeasures. Well, the EF-10s were eventually replaced with the EA-6, which the Navy and the Marine Corps both got. They were initially EA-6As, which were two-seater models, a pilot and an ECMO. And then later, the Navy and the Marine Corps replaced those EA-6As with the B model, which had four guys in it. In 1975, Vietnam was done, and the Marine Corps said, we're going to take all the RF-4s, send them to El Toro. We're going to take all the EA-6s, which had all come online and replaced the EF-10s. We're going to take those from those three VMCJ squadrons, and we're going to send them to Cherry Point on the East Coast. And we're going to stand up a new EA-6 squadron called VMAQ-2. So that's what happened. They split those assets into two separate new squadrons. So going forward, that El Toro squadron now had total responsibility for any Marine Corps reconnaissance requirements worldwide, whether they were East Coast, West Coast, Westpac, whatever. And the EA-6 guys on the East Coast at Cherry Point, they had the same requirement for any ECM requirements. So going forward from 1975 through 1990, that's about a 15-year period, the RF force continued to operate out of El Toro. They continued to feed that four-plane dead on the Midway. And then the Marine Corps decided in the 1990 time frame, okay, we're done. It's becoming too expensive to maintain the RF-4 parts. We're getting harder to come by. 
the F-4 by that point was already transitioning into the F-18. We started to see those at El Toro in about 84, 85. So the Marine Corps decided we're going to just completely uh, decommission all RF-4s. And that happened in September of 1990, just before the Gulf, the first Gulf War started. In hindsight, I think the Marine Corps regretted that. That's just my opinion. I, that's not an official Marine Corps position, but I think the Marine Corps wished they would have at least kept a four-plane debt that they could have used over in uh, Kuwait, because at that time, the Air Force was the only photo game in town. I'm, I'm guessing the cameras, maybe the aircraft was the same, but I'm guessing the equipment got better over the years. Well, the equipment continued to be modified, you know, from time to time and upgraded. And I'm sure the Air Force, with all the money they typically have, they, they probably got the best of everything. Did you stick around and make a career of it or what, what else did you go do? I did. I had three tours in VMCJ-3. I had two tours in VMCJ-1. And then I ended up getting assigned to the Naval Postgraduate School. Oh, in Monterey? Monterey. I went there for a year and a half. I got a master's degree. And then you have to do a payback tour for that. <laughs> well, my payback tour was I got sent to MCAS Tustin, which at that time was still in business. That was in the 1977 timeframe. Okay. I had to go to Tustin for the three years as their station comptroller. I got my degree in financial management. So I was a station comptroller at Tustin for three years. But the good deal about that was I got to fly the T-39 over at El Toro. The air station owned the T-39 at that time, and uh, they needed pilots. And so I got to fly that. Actually got to make aircraft commander in it. And when I finished that air station tour at Tustin, my next assignment was to go to 1st Marine Aircraft Wing and just be a staff guy in their G1 section, the admin section. So I get over there. They have a T-39 that belongs to 1st Mall, and they're short of pilots. And I'm already a qualified aircraft commander, so I got to fly that for the year that I was over there with uh, the wing headquarters working in J-1. I got some good flights out of that deal. So then I was at that between the postgraduate school, Monterey, I mean, uh, Tustin and that one assignment in Okinawa with the wing, I was out of the squadron for about seven years. So then I finally get orders back to El Toro to the third mall. And because I'd been away for seven years, I had to go down to Yuma and go through refresher training in the regular F-4 VMFAT 101 was down there at that time. So I got some refresher training and then back to VMFP3, that squadron that stood up 21 aircraft. And I really lucked out. I got a five-year tour at VMFP3 going from OPSO to XO to CO. Wow. 25 months as CO. <laughs> so uh, that was probably, you know, the best assignment I ever had. So I assume you used the term NATOPS uh, even back then. Oh, yeah. Was an RF-4 NATOPS qual, or, or I guess I'm asking, is the F-4 NATOPS qual for everything, or was the RF-4 separate? No. We had our own NATOPS. The RF-4, you know, had a NATOPS manual just like the F-4, and just like every other aircraft does these days, but it was strictly an RF-4 NATOPS, and it was all RF-4 systems and everything. 
Now, if you are ever, I don't know if you ever did the hassle or whatever you want to call it, the BFM, dogfight, ACM with another aircraft. Well, first off, did you? And if you did, did the RF-4 perform pretty well or did that nose hurt it or how did it do? No, I think it, we did what they call basic defense maneuvers. You know, they taught us and we did them with other, with regular fighter versions. And we did them with, you know, our own guys that were qualified to be instructors. I think it performed as well as the fighter version. I mean, it had the same engines and uh, I don't think the long nose hurt it any, but we just got basic defensive tactics. You know, how, if you got engaged by a MIG, you know, how's the best way to separate and get out of there, bug out when you can. Yeah, that makes sense. But it wasn't, I mean, we, we just got the basics. Some guys got really good at it. How many hours did you end up with then in the RF4? That's a little over 2,000 altogether. Some of it in the back, some of it in the front, most of it in the front. Well, most of it in the front, yeah. I mean, I got, I had from uh, 67 to 69, two years in the back. And that included, you know, getting your MOS. Well, like you said, it gave you a lot of credibility when you flew in the front for the rest of your career because the folks in the back, you were kind of one of them. Yeah. And, you know, I learned a lot about the aircraft in the back and, and I learned a lot about pilots. We had pilots when I first got into it that had come out of the F-8. They had never flown a two-seat aircraft. You know, their whole career, they had been single-seat jet guys. They didn't think they needed a backseat guy. They, In fact, they would rather have had a gas tank back there than an NFO. And they made it very clear to you when, you know, as a rookie, they say, I don't want you to do anything unless I tell you. And they, they just made it clear they were not happy to have you. They'd rather have gas. Well, I'd like to say that that attitude has changed nowadays. But anyway. Oh, yeah, it has. And, and that was just a few guys. That wasn't the majority. That was some of the older guys that had been around a while. The newer guys, you know, had a completely different attitude. But the other thing I learned was I flew with pilots that would do things with the aircraft without giving you in the backseat a heads up. Hey, I'm getting ready to do this or stand by. And sometimes they would do things that would just scare the bejesus out of you. And you wondered, are they flying this thing or not? And so when I became a front seater, I said, I'm going to keep the guy in the back informed. You know, when, when we're going to do some stuff that may be a little shaky or something unusual, I'm going to let him know ahead of time. And that was just another thing I learned being in the back seat that I think made me a better front seater. <laughs> that probably endeared you to them, but. It's, so, it's funny that uh, someone hasn't come up with an expression. Let's see, treat others the way maybe you want to be treated. <laughs> Sound familiar, right? But uh, now I'm sure uh, I'm sure you were popular among the NFOs there. So great. All right. Well, uh, gosh, we've already been quacking here for an hour, Larry. What did you do just in broad strokes after the Marine Corps? When I retired, I took a job in the civilian sector, the private sector for about a year and a half, worked a couple of different things. First one was I worked as a consultant for a firm down in Arizona in Phoenix called Dames and Moore. At the time, they had been hired to do an airspace study for MCAS Yuma. And I think I forgot to mention the last thing I did after I gave up the squadron is I went to the FAA as a Marine Corps liaison with the FAA on the West Coast for three years. And I learned a hell of a lot about airspace, particularly special use airspace and how to keep guys out of trouble. I'm talking military pilots, things I wish I would have known when I was the OPSO and the 
CO of a squadron that I could have imparted to our guys. But anyway, because of my background and the stuff I learned about the FAA, I got hired by this company in Phoenix to just help them do this airspace study for MCAS Yuma, which they were trying to expand their airspace at the time. And then I took a job after that with a company here on the, in Orange County, kind of a glorified office manager type position up in Tustin for an organization called the Institute of Real Estate Management. And I won't bore you with what all that was. But one day I'm sitting in my office in that job and I get a call from Camp Pendleton. Guy calling me as a, a lawyer down there, a good friend of mine. He said, hey, there's a job opening up at Camp Pendleton. I think he'd be really good for. Would you consider applying for it? I said, well, you know, I'll think about it. Well, the bottom line was I decided, OK, I'll, I'll give that a shot. So I put my application in. And one of the reasons for that is driving up to this job in Tustin, the traffic was so bad. This was before the freeways got expanded. It would take me an hour after getting there to get over being pissed off with the drive. And the same thing coming home at the end of the day, it'd take me an hour to get over being pissed off with the drive home. So this Pendleton job would be like working in my backyard. So anyway, I applied for the job. Bottom line is I ended up getting it. And I ended up staying there for 22 years working as a civilian at Camp Pendleton. So that gave me about almost 48 years with the Marine Corps. And I, it was a job I really enjoyed, had a great time with it. I worked directly for the base commander and the chief of staff, didn't have anybody else in between. And I've been retired from that now about six years. So right now I'm like fully retired. Fully retired. That's not a bad place to be. Good. All right. And hanging out in a beach community there in San Clemente. So what rank did you retire at? Oh, Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel. Okay. Same as me. Oh, five. All right. Well, if you ever make it down to San Diego, I hope you let me know. And like I said, I pass through from time to time, but I'm usually sitting in that traffic and I'm like you, I, I despise traffic. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. Maybe we'll have to connect sometime for a refreshment. Yeah. I'd be, love to do that sometime. All right, Larry. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I forget how we got connected. Someone connected us, didn't they? Well, that was Gary Fry. That's right. He's one of our Patreon supporters. Yeah. And I, I'll be honest with you. And I, I guess I would apologize. I never heard of your podcast. I didn't know anything about you guys. <laughs> That's okay. That just means we haven't spent enough money on advertising. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary is the guy that brought it to my attention. And he said, uh, you know, they don't have any information about the RF4. Why don't, you know, would you be interested in talking to them about that aircraft? And I said, yeah. Well, and, and this, you know, again, this is a happy hour. So Gary's one of our Patreon supporters. But a lot, a lot of times it's just fun to meet people this way. And then, and then if we decide we want a whole separate episode, let's say on the RF4, we can either invite you back and we'll have questions and an order sure. to it. Or we can just use this, you know, and, and because we've talked about it so much. But either way, it's just fun. I said it on a recent episode. We've been covering a lot of marine aircraft lately on the show. We just did the CH-53 and before that, the AH-1. But it's such a blessing to have this show because I get to meet people like you and others. And, and I learned a lot because I didn't know that much about the RF-4. So that's just one of many. So it's been fun. Well, I've enjoyed it. Appreciate meeting you. And I agree. We get together for a beer or something sometime. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, 
a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.